If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. There's nothing more alluring in life, arguably, than to be told when you hate yourself, you hate your body, you hate everything about you, that there's a pill you can take and you can be a different person with a different name and a different identity and nobody will be able to refer to that old, awful, humiliated, shameful self because that's the trans identity kind of ideology that's being offered to these teenagers. They're very often autistic, they're very often very naive and they're very often incredibly cerebral but completely disconnected from their bodies. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Stella O'Malley. Stella, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on. We're thrilled to have you on. I've been following your work for for some time now, and you've got this new book out, which is brilliant. It's called When Kids Say They're Trans, A Guide for Thoughtful Parents, which you've written, uh, co-authored with Sasha Ayad and Lisa Marciano. It's really interesting. I've read a lot of books on the trans question. It's something I'm very interested in. I've read feminist critiques of the trans ideology. I've read polemical critiques. I've read political analysis. This is something a little bit different. This is a book that you've written in your capacity as a psychotherapist, as someone who has counseled large numbers of uh, uh, young people. Um, And it's a book for parents. It's a book, it's an advice book speaking directly to parents about what to do if their teen or their kid says they're trans. So to kick off, why did you think it was important to write a book for parents on this issue? I I think it was imperative. I think we all, well, many of us know about the trans debate. We know how vitriolic it is. We know how much pain and anger has been around people being cancelled. I don't think people have quite understood how utterly devastating it has been for parents and for families. The reason why they haven't, they will, they will hear about it. But right now, those families are generally in the middle of uh, an unfolding medical scandal and their kid has been wrapped up in it. And, you know, we, we generally most parents care more about their kids than anybody else. And so their most precious person has been caught up in something that makes this kid. There's nothing more alluring in life, arguably, than to be told when you hate yourself, you hate your body, you hate everything about you, that there's a pill you can take and you can be a different person with a different name and a different identity. And nobody will be able to refer to that old, awful, humiliated, shameful self. Instead, you can be somebody new and you can start again. And nobody will be able to refer to it because that's the trans identity kind of ideology that's being offered to these teenagers. They're very often autistic. They're very often very naive. And they're very often incredibly cerebral, but completely disconnected from their bodies. And their parents are frantic. They're frantic. They're cross-eyed with distress. And they're trying to figure out, how do I help my kid? And so often, many of them have ended up going to gender identity clinics thinking that they were doing the right thing by their kid. And I remember one parent saying, it was like I was in a horror movie 
And the doctor kind of removed his mask and he was the villain, the monster that was going to get my kid. That's what it felt like for one parent who was in a gender identity clinic. When the the clinician in, in, in question had moved from He's got eight diagnoses of ADHD, of, of, of autism, of anxiety. He's got an eating disorder. And now we're putting him on medication and on a fast track to surgery because um, he wants it. And so because these private silent stories have been in our inbox for years now and we're utterly overwhelmed by the demand, utterly inundated by parents seeking help, we knew that we had to take time out, even though we, we are very, very busy we had to take time out and just get a book that we could say, here's here's how you can help their kids. Just just look after them yourselves because sending them out to the professionals hasn't worked. Here's how you, a parent, can just renegotiate the situation so you can take charge and have some authority in your own family. Yeah, and, and it really does that. I mean, it's it, the book is such a clear-eyed conversation with parents. And it, there's something really striking about the book from the very beginning. I think it's the first few pages where you describe this as an an explicitly pro-parent book and you have this line which feels almost revolutionary these days in in this era of parenting experts when parents are encouraged to trust doctors more than themselves and experts more than themselves. You have this line where you say, in general, parents or carers know their children better than anyone else, better than doctors, teachers, therapists or sports coaches. Parents also love their children more than anyone else. Now, that shouldn't sound radical, but it does, um, because the trans issue in particular is one in which parents are encouraged or sometimes pressured to surrender their authority and their knowledge of their kids to an external power, uh, a medical expert or a doctor or a potential trans surgeon, a dispenser of hormonal medication, whoever it might be. So did you think it was important to not only um, give parents the information they might need if their kid says they're trans, but also to remind them that they have a relationship with their kid that is more special than their kid's relationship with anybody else? I'm glad you picked out those sentences. I, I know we, we kind of first got it really from Lisa Marciano, one of our authors, where she said, you, you know, to a parent, you're the world expert on your your child. And it's bang on. Dead right. Yeah, you are. You know what I mean? Nobody really knows your kid the way you know your kid. I'm talking about the vast majority of parents. We can just generalize. And um, I've kind of studied this quite a lot over the years. I've, I've written a few books. My first book was Cotton Roll Kids. I saw you had Lenore Skenazy on and it was very part of that whole free range parenting thing. It's back in 2016. And where in that book, I really studied the disempowering of parents and how parents have been kind of demoted from mother knows best to mother is is a clown who doesn't have a notion about her her children and bring on super nanny you, you know what i mean and all these you know pseudo experts who are incredibly um derogatory but also very prescriptive about how you can fix your kid and it's actually i, I am a mother i know how alluring it is when you've got your kid in distress to think bring in the professionals help them out just bring in somebody, anybody, because I'm feeling so out of my depth and I'm afraid my kid is going to get distressed. So I know how alluring it is, but it's deceptively alluring because actually being human is difficult. You know, we, we often have an awful lot of distress from cradle to grave. And in a way, this message that parents, if your kid isn't happy, what are you doing wrong, parents, has been, it's completely, you know, the antithesis of anybody who understands the human mind. And sadly, as a psychotherapist, 
our mental health industry is is an absolute mess. It's a mess. It's it's kind of got these kind of soundbite culture where it's been kind of distilled into this situation where people are being kind of suggested you should have happy kids. And if you haven't, you are probably at fault and you're probably doing a few things wrong. And here's some simple acronyms to follow. So you've got some kind of easy kind of solutions on top of that, because every anybody who studied kind of gender and trans these days will realize it's a perfect storm of a lot of different aspects. And part of the queer theory um, movement has been a, a very purposeful dismantling of family life and of the family position and of the parental position. And so it's it's coming at all angles. And so if you're just a parent who loves your child, who has had a lot of diagnosis and distress already, and then gender comes in like a, a, a truck, you know, like an articulated truck into the family, very sudden, very quick, fast track medicalization, you feel so disempowered that you feel useless. And so a lot of the book, and I've written a few books and people always call me a parenting expert and I kind of writhe and die when they say it because... I'm not, I'm trying to give power to parents. I'm trying to say, you can do it. You're, you're well able. You know what I mean? <laughs> and here's the reason why you are well able. You, you know what I mean? And trying to kind of push against this idea of here's five ways to be a better parent. You, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's absolutely demoralizing and disempowering. And it's not working either. Send your kid to a therapist when they're a teenager is triangulating the situation where effectively the child is a victim, the parent is a persecutor, and the therapist is the saviour. You've triangulated the situation. Everybody is disempowered. Nobody benefits from that. And unless your child is in extreme distress or has extreme trauma, we recommend, first of all, first of all, lean in yourself with love and some boundaries and some structure. And then consider bringing in professionals Later on, and if you were going to bring professionals, start with yourself. Get yourself some professional help just to see where you're going and what's going down before you send the kid off to a therapist. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable, And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology... 
And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now on with the show. So I I want to come back to that question in a moment about parental authority, family, sovereignty, because I think they're so important to this whole question, to the whole trans issue that has kind of exploded uh, over the past decade or so. Um, But first, I want to dig down into some of the terminology that parents might expect to hear, because one thing that I found really valuable about your book is um, you talk about the fact that this is actually a very complex situation. So for example, you say that being trans or feeling trans is not the same as being gender dysphoric and being diagnosed with gender dysphoria. These can be different things. And you also describe the issues around rapid onset gender dysphoria and the impact that can have on the relationship between parents and children in particular. You have a There's a great section in the book where you describe very accurately, I'm sure, the way in which parents feel they have to tiptoe around kids and teenagers who have rapid onset gender dysphoria in case they misgender them or say the wrong thing and the kid might not speak to them for for months on end or, or whatever other punishment they might seek to inflict. So you talk about all the different things a kid might say in relation to their gender and what that gender distress might really be expressing. And you challenge the idea that it's just this happy, clappy situation where a 12-year-old says, I'm trans and everyone's supposed to stand up and applaud. So can you just describe a little bit about the kind of terms parents might expect to hear from their kids and, and what they mean in reality? Yeah, that that is a, a really good point to highlight because so often, like the kid will have been online and will have learned jargon and they'll have learned acronyms. And when they decide that they're trans, it might be six months of kind of flirting with the online kind of trans community, that life. And they'll have learned their jargon. And not only that, but they'll have learned concepts, you know what I mean? Such as, does your feminism include trans women? They'll they'll have learned and they sound really impressive because this is a 12 year old and you're going, oh, (laughs) didn't even know you were interested in feminism. (laughs) And it's expanded feminism for, for your point of view. So because of that, this is one of the reasons parents feel feel so, you know, perniciously disarmed is because um, they will have learned all this jargon. And then when they arrive, and often they arrive very, very fully, um, fully declared. So they say, I'm trans mom, or they might, you know, in the Christmas card say, happy Christmas, I'm trans. Or you thought you had a, you know, on their birthday, you thought you had a girl, but you have a boy. And it's done. I'm trans, I've thought about it, I've been online, I've thought all the concepts and I'm giving it to you as a fait accompli. Now, parent, catch up and catch up quick. And the parent is like, whoa, 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 what's going on? And I don't understand half these words. And what do you mean you're trans? You, what has actually happened materially, if you follow me? And when you start studying it, you'll realise, well, nothing has happened materially. This is actually a self-identification. It's happening between somebody's two ears. And what has happened is somebody has got, arguably, depending on the person, there's a lot of different ways into into being self-identifying as trans. And there's a lot of ways to identify out as trans. A few of them, I'll just go through a few of the the, the ways in, for example, could be this classic 12-year-old, lonely, maybe has some autistic traits or ADHD traits, anxious, socially awkward, may, may have had a trauma, 
and has gone online because they're lonely and found a community. And the community is very cerebral and this is a clever kid. So they like the concepts. They're interested. It's like discovering communism when you're 12. It's like, whoa, back in the 80s. Like, this is interesting. You know what I mean? Whoa, a whole new world order. And nothing is reliable. All knowledge is, is debatable. That's very attractive to somebody who's unhappy and kind of thinking, what's going wrong in the world? Because it's natural between 10 and 20 to kind of try and figure out what's going on wrong in the world and figure out your values and your and your way ahead. And so when the parent, I'm going to give you very long answers, <laughs> settle down. <laughs> so when the parent is given this, I'm trans, the parent is pedaling furiously to catch up while the, the, the train has left the station. They are so far behind. And so we go into the language, we give a glossary at the back of the book, we discuss what different things mean. So trans, for example, is an umbrella term that anybody could identify into or out of. So you or I could identify into or out of trans in this meeting, both in and out, if we wished. So it's a self-identified um, word that is um, open to everybody who wants it. And um, gender dysphoria is a very different thing. Gender dysphoria is a diagnosable mental health condition, arguably. It's certainly one that afflicts the mind in a very deep way. And we don't know why some people feel a real sense of distress about being a boy or being a girl. But we do know that they have consistently been there in tiny numbers. And I was one of them. So from the year, from about the age of three or so onwards, I um, felt very uneasy about being a girl. I hated being a girl. I wanted to be a boy. I thought I would be better as a boy, and I still think I would have been better as a boy. And um, I was really, you know, I was a fighter, and I was really good at sports, and I was very busy beating the boys at everything, and um, enjoyed my power. And this isn't said enough. I enjoyed my power of blowing adults' minds when they were like, she really is all the way in this. You can question her all the way. And she's like, yeah, I'm a boy. I'm a boy. I'm a boy. I'm a boy. And you won't get a chink in my armor. So I now know, because I was born in 1974, I now know I was a classic childhood onset gender dysphoria. Very classic. I had all the kind of, the big kind of moniker about these people are, are they insistent, persistent and consistent? And I was phenomenally so. So that's one type. They are not really the type that has been talked about all the time these days. That's just a kind of that quirky little kid. There was very few of us, but they existed. Very often, the vast majority of those kids, especially if they were boys, grew up to be gay. Those fairy little feminine boys that ran around in dresses ended up very often being gay. And they generally, puberty is what makes the difference. Sexual development, a sexual awakening, starting to fancy other people. So you're suddenly less obsessed with how you are and you want to fancy other people. And you're thinking, well, how do I connect with them <laughs> as opposed to me, 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 me. And the child state is very self-absorbed and it's a very childlike state. Me, it's all about me and how you perceive me and I'm going to control how you perceive me. And then you get a sexual awakening and you want to renegotiate life because you suddenly want to become attractive as a mate. And so you you often become more socially skilled as a result. So that is the classic childhood onset. Then there's this new type of uh, gender dysphoria, which is called rapid onset gender dysphoria. It was first studied by uh, Lisa Lippman in 2018. Lisa Marciano, one of our co-authors, wrote a phenomenal um, paper on it, on the, the ROGD phenomenon in 2017, just before Lisa Lippman uh, uh, published hers, which was all about kind of the social contagion that can happen and has happened 
thousands of times before. Like there was dancing mania in medieval Europe. There was people thought they were made of glass. There was extraordinary, even like there was a fainting kind of contagion in English schools a couple of decades ago. There's been loads of contagions. Anybody who knows anything about suicide would know that it's deeply contagious. Suicide is a really, really, really contagious concept. And so everybody, and that has devastating consequences. So it's not undermining a person's sense of distress to um, say it's a contagion because you couldn't be more distressed to to be uh, suicidal. But it does feel that the new cohort of teenage, mostly girls, but not only girls, um, definitely vulnerable with autism or, or, or ADHD or OCD or eating disorders, those teenage cerebral types, socially awkward, have suddenly become very, very, very prone to um, developing a form of gender dysphoria that looks very different to the form I had as a kid. I was very sure about what I wanted. I was a boy and I should be a boy and people should recognize that I was a boy. <laughs> it couldn't have been clearer, you know what I mean? While with this new type, they're not like that. They're cerebral and they're neo-pronouns and they're talking about different identities. It's a whole scene that's going on. But they are medicalizing. They're looking for testosterone and they're looking for mastectomies and they're binding their breasts. So it's equally devastating. And we don't know anything. We've no long-term evidence about this crowd. We don't know what's going to happen with them. We do know it definitely looks like a contagion. It has all the... It has all the traits of a contagion. It walks and talks like a contagion. But um, if you say it's a contagion in this weirdly controversial um, minefield that is gender, it's you're accused of almost undermining their distress rather than really deeply understanding their distress and seeking to help them. So there, there, there's a few types. Then there's another type. I just want to quickly, there is a whole other type that isn't spoken all that much about, but there's a kind of a sexual kind of drive, especially among some um, males, to become uh, the opposite sex. It's a sexual fixation. It's called autogynophilia. And um, again, completely under research. We don't know the numbers. We don't know wh- why or what it is that propels some males, especially males, to become erotically fixated on being the opposite sex, we can see that there's many of them at the moment and they're very, very loud. Again, funnily enough, often have other diagnoses to contend with. So there there are some commonalities with with these cohorts, but um, I've just given you three that off the top of my head, they're vastly different people. You know what I mean? The, the type like me, childhood onset, are generally very powerful and pushy. The type like the ROGD are very timid, often, not always, but, you know, so I'm doing generalizations, but it's unbelievable the differences in this word gender dysphoria. Yeah, that's a really useful answer. And that's one of the reasons your book is so useful as well, because I think there are a lot of people out there for whom trans means everything from the 14 year old girl who's desperate to get a double mastectomy right through to the 45 year old slightly perverted bloke who likes to walk around in revealing women's clothes and go into women's changing rooms and, t- and get undressed. I mean, the idea that this is all the same thing is so ludicrous. And the, and, you, and especially the idea that it's this wonderful, they're all wonderful expressions of a trans identity. We must wave the flag. We must celebrate them. They're obviously very different and there are obviously particular problems and issues in relation to each one. So that's one of the reasons your book is very useful for just for breaking down some of those categories and some of those terms. 
I did want to ask you, you mentioned there about the issue of comorbidities in relation to uh, someone's teenager who might say, listen, I'm trans or I'm gender dysphoric or however they might express it. And uh, you talk in the book about comorbidities and the fact that a fairly significant number of gender dysphoric young people will also have ADHD or OCD or eating disorders or anxiety or some other ailment, uh, mental health ailment, usually. Um, I wanted to ask you about that because it, this does strike me as one of the more sinister aspects of rushing kids onto a conveyor belt of hormonal intervention and possibly surgical intervention later in life. We've heard recently about a case of a girl, a young, a teenage girl with significant mental health issues who was a- approved for gender reassignment surgery. We know that significant numbers of the kids who are going to the Tavistock Clinic uh, had autism. What do you think has gone wrong in the medical establishment where there is this, there has been this very affirmative response to a kid's declaration of their identity rather than a stopping, a thinking, an analysis of what other ailments are afflicting this kid and kind of taking a step back from it all? Um, a lot has gone wrong. So let me organise my thoughts. I think um, there's been a there's been a, a kind of an emphasis on mental health that has kind of, in a way, become over the top, and so um, professionals have an over 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 the top um, view of themselves, and they think that they need to come in and sort out families. It's just been a general creep that's happened over the last decades. And, you know, I, I'm a psychotherapist, but I sometimes feel like a, a priest who's lost their faith because I, <laughs> I, I, over time, I'm like, honestly, I think therapy is, is amazing, but bad therapy is incredibly harmful. It's more harmful than no therapy at all. And um, what I have found is that this kind of on high position of doctors where they kind of, you know, shake their head and they kind of say, you don't really get it, parent, Leave it to us. We've got a deeper understanding. It's it's very frightening when your kid is on, in distress and somebody says that to you. So that's one element that has happened. Uh, another aspect of this. So I, I would just believe kind of ba- basically puffed up clinicians who, um, in fairness, in positions of authority, I think this is very much your kind of, uh, this is very much your song, <laughs> but puffed up people in places of authority. And I saw your piece about Lucy Letby and how and I thought it was really brilliant. And you basically said, you know, evil people are I'm going to tell you what you said, but there you go. <laughs> evil people are always going to be there, but people in positions of bureaucracy and authority can really matter. And that has was reflected in, you know, these consultants had to apologize to Lucy Lepi because they dared to um point out that there was there seemed to be um discrepancies in how she behaved as she was murdering babies. And I think there's a there's a bureaucracy and authoritarian attitude towards mental health that's crept in step by step. And I think it's very, very frightening. And actually, if your kid is distressed and you've got one of those authoritarian clinic clinicians, you're in an incredibly um, vulnerable position. On top of that, I suppose I, I as a result of my own um, kind of experiences of gender, I, I kind of kept an eye on what gender and people who transitioned because I always, whenever I met a trans person, I'd kind of look at them with the idea of what oh, they got stuck because I think anybody can develop OCD and some people get stuck with OCD and it chases them their whole life. And some people, you know, 
get into alcohol problems and some people get stuck with it and they never leave alcoholism. And so I had had my gender distress and I had moved beyond it, but I had a deep sympathy for people who got, in my words, back when I wasn't, I didn't qualify as a, as a psychotherapist until I was in my 30s. And I realized they, well, I thought that was how I understood they got stuck. They got stuck in this identity that they couldn't get out of, which is what I was when I was a kid. I was very distressed in it, by the way, for many years. And so I did that film in Channel 4. I wrote a a piece about the trans issue in 2017. And then I did the film in in Channel 4 in 2018, Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk. And the premise of the film was, could any of the 4,000% rise in teenage girls being transitioned or identifying as trans in the clinics in the UK, could any of them be like me who grew out of it and actually became a very happy, comfortable in their own skin, heterosexual mother who's, who's, who's most important part of their life is being a mother. You know what I mean? Could any of them be like me? That was all. That was all I wanted to ask. And for that, I was, I was eviscerated for being a transphobic bigot and uh, cancelled but we sure we're all getting cancelled every day now, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it has the power that it used to have. But it was frightening in 2018 because I was just an ordinary mental health, you know, psychotherapist who wrote books. So it was very frightening at the time. But after that, so many people came to me telling me their stories. These were regretters. They were detransitioners. They were parents of kids who were stuck in it. And so when COVID came around and there was uh, suddenly all the work stopped in March 2020. I'd been inundated by parents and I said, okay, well, I'll run a few online Zooms to see, you know, okay, I've, I suddenly have no work. So yeah, okay, well, let's have a few online Zooms. And it was phenomenal what happened that first night of that first Zoom of about 20 parents and every single one of the parents saying he has ADHD. When, when he was seven, he was diagnosed with autism. He developed an eating disorder at 13. And I keep on saying he here. These were she as well. Like there was way more she than she, he. Um, you know, she, she, she has had a huge amount of trauma in her life. And I was just going around each parent going, these are deeply vulnerable children. These are the, the hard end of vulnerability. These aren't kind of slightly. These are the really, really, really distressed kids that there's one in every class, two, very few. You know what I mean? And I remember I came down after that meeting. I was in horror. I was chilled. I knew it was happening. But when I saw it in real time of the parents going, my most vulnerable kid, my really distressed kid has got caught up in this. And that's when I realized something massive is happening among the parents. And that one meeting was supposed to be one a week, immediately turned into two, three, four, five or six a week. I was inundated with COVID. I was the busiest person in the world in COVID. But all these parent meetings that I hadn't expected. And from that, about a year later in June 21, I started Genspect. And the idea was to give a healthy approach to sex and gender, to give a voice to this, to just keep on talking about the healthy approach. What about celebrating, for example, gender diversity without uh, medicalization? And so we have, after tackling this for, for some years now, we're creating a gender care framework. And so WPATH, well, I know you'll, I know I'm running on a little bit here, but WPATH, who are the kind of self-identified world authority on trans, and they, they are where all roads with trans leads to WPATH, all roads. Since 1979, they have always been there, zealously advocating for extraordinary policies, such as no age minimum for mastectomies and, you know, really, really extraordinary stuff. I'm talking about, you know, anybody can identify as trans, no matter what age, 
you know, under twos have a non, can make gendered communications and things like that. And so for for that reason, Genspect is, is in the midst of creating right now a gender care framework, which is an answer to their standards of care. Their standards of care medicalizes gender identity. What we're trying to do is saying, well, what about a framework that shows how society can handle gender diversity without medicalization? We're not interested in medicalization. How about, how do we handle the fact that some people want to present the opposite way and how do we balance the conflict of needs that some women are going to be very, very vulnerable and will not want males, whether they're stealth or not, in their spaces? So we developed the gender care framework. Now, that's nothing to do with the books. I'm bold to be sticking it in. But it's it's very important that people know that there's many ways to look at this and repeating basic mantras that just kind of dull your brain doesn't help anybody. This is complex. Yes, it absolutely is. And I want to come back to Genspect in a moment just to ask you about what you guys are doing. Um, But one of the things about your book that I think people will find really bracing and very rewarding, I think, after years of seemingly, we've only heard one message, especially from officialdom and the mainstream media about trans, um, is that your book is very honest with parents. It's very upfront with parents. So you say, for example, that if your daughter, if your teenage daughter uh, goes on this track of uh, becoming, supposedly becoming male, she may have to take testosterone for decades. She may end up doing that. And you talk about how transgender surgery destroys healthy tissue and biological functioning. Now, these are absolutely true. This is essential information, but I think it's very often hidden beneath the kind of conformist attitude we're all supposed to have to the trans question. And then there's another way you're very honest as well, that that you and your co-authors, where you address the question that parents sometimes ask you, which is, is my child truly trans? And what's interesting in the book is that you reject the premise of that question, because to, to say yes or no to it would mean buying into the idea that kids and everyone else has a, an inner gender essence or a gendered soul that might run counter to their biological framing in some way or to, to their real sex, to their, to their outward sex. That's an important idea to challenge, isn't it, to take down? Because it does seem to me that that idea, this idea that there is sometimes a conflict between one's gendered soul and one's external self, seems to be at the heart of a lot of the craziness that seems to be happening right now. You're so right. The, the fact is, most people who haven't thought about this very much are conflating being gay with being trans. And so they genuinely think some kids, they haven't thought about it very much, but they've literally thought, oh, some kids are born in the wrong body. They're trans. And it's like, well, hang on. Sorry, what? Born in the wrong body? Did, did, we, have a, did we have a choice of bodies to choose from? Like, can you be born in the wrong head? Like, what does born in the wrong body? If you even give it like a moment's thought, you'll realize this is a farcical. We're born in our bodies and as our bodies. We have no other body to choose from. And when we die, it is our bodies that will die. So the entire concept of born in the wrong body is just a metaphor. It's a metaphor of a feeling, if you follow me. And um, we address in the first chapter, is my child trans? And we talk about that presumes that there's some sort of inner essence within you that is trans. And we don't, we don't kind of, that's not where we understand gender. It's not how we understand being trans. What we understand is being trans is something you identify as. You can identify as or not. That's immaterial to your happiness. Gender dysphoria, however, is a very distressing condition. 
and you might your child might need an awful lot of help with their gender dysphoria. And some people with gender dysphoria medically transition and they are what would be conventionally or what would have been traditionally called somebody who is trans, somebody who is medically transitioned. That was the old way of understanding it. This new way of I'm trans, you're trans, whoever wants to be trans is befuddling. And that's why we address it right at the outset, right at the beginning. We say, let's have a look at that concept. So because so many parents would say, is my child trans? And we'd say, well, I, wh- what does that actually mean? And it's all roads lead to, I thought it was like being gay. You were kind of born out of it. And often I haven't thought about that very much because what does that mean? Is there some sort of gene within you? Is there some sort of, you know what I mean? Because if there was, well, what happened for the last thousands of years? if you follow me. And they often would say, oh, there's been loads of suicides. And it's like, well, where's the massive reduction in suicides, if that's the case? Because there's been thousands of people transitioned recently. So where's the huge uptake? Because none of this stands scrutiny for more than four minutes, one minute. It really (laughs) doesn't. But in a world where we run on sound bites, people have become very comfortable with learning the right sound bite and just rolling with it. And that's why we called it when kids say they're trans and we called the first chapter, is my child trans? Let's just penetrate that entire concept. But we do do other chapters like one chapter fully on social transition, talking about that in a very deep way, giving it the respect it deserves. And like you just mentioned, a full chapter on medical transition, like, okay, this is what the science will tell you. If you choose to have a mastectomy, these are the complications that that will ensue. And also following on from that, Many people who detransition also have issues. So we we talk about detransition and we talk about desistance and how to roll back from affirmation because so many parents have affirmed and then they think, I shouldn't have. I thought it was the right thing to do. I was misadvised. And honestly, my kid is more distressed now and I need to, you know, regain authority in the household. I, I really have an extraordinary amount of, of, of sympathy for any parent who's in this. Um, like I say, I've got two kids. I know what it's like to love your kids. So you're cross-eyed. And, you know, the idea that you can think straight when your kid is at their most vulnerable is kind of laughable. You, you can't. So you look to these people in authority and they're being misled. It's it's such a shocking tragedy. It's hard to believe that it's actually happened. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Um, okay, so I, I did want to revisit the question of parental authority. And um, I know that sounds like an old-fashioned disciplinarian term, brings to mind 
possibly what our parents were like back in the old days. Um, but what I mean by that is the point you make in the book, which parents are often, uh, are most parents are the world experts on their kids. They know them better. They care for them more. They have their interests at heart far more than any institution does. Um, I want to touch on that with you because you mentioned there that when some when your kid's vulnerable, um, it's hard to think straight. Uh, your kid's stress can impact on you and make you feel stressed too. And that, that can then be quite tempting in those situations to look to the experts and to bow down to the experts in some cases and to outsource your stress to them so that they kind of fix the problem. But that's exacerbated, as you know, from what you've been writing about for the past few years, that's also exacerbated by the culture that we live in. We do live in an anti-parents culture in some ways. You know, don't trust your instincts. Don't let your kid do this. Don't let your kid eat that. You know, listen to me, follow these guidelines. There has been a chipping away at parental uh, authority and family sovereignty. I mean, Christopher Lash wrote about this decades ago, just the encroachment into family life through the growth of commerce and therapy culture and other uh, ways in which the integrity of the family, he argued, was being undermined. And that has kind of intensified. And it's really clearly expressed in the trans idea. We see schools now socially, sometimes socially transitioning kids behind their parents' backs. And trans activists will openly say, well, that's the right thing to do because parents can be horrible people. In that climate, the question I wanted to ask you is in that Given that parents can feel distressed when their kids are distressed, and given we live in this culture that discourages parents to trust themselves and their own instincts, what can what practical things can a parent do when they're faced with a kid saying, I'm I'm trans, I'm I'm a boy, I'm a girl, that holds the family together and makes them the boss of this situation and the person who's going to be the best at solving it? Yeah. We try to address that kind of throughout the book because it's the most commonly asked question by parents. Like, what am I going to do? You're telling me all the bad things. Now, what am I going to do? There's Honestly, there is an awful lot that parents can do. Um, in a way that you could argue, and I'm, I'm going to try not to be prescriptive because there's a million ways you can go at it, but throwing out a few things that you could do is, one is you could go quiet and start listening because generally, and we have one of the chapters is called, it's not really about gender. Generally, it's about an underlying distress, if you follow me. And the, 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 the transition, the trans identity is a solution to the distress. So if you can figure out what is the distress, what's actually going on? And, you know, there's a great psychologist who said, what's going on now? What's really going on? Like, what's behind this? So that will require you to be probably quiet for a while while you kind of think, well, I need to I need to ask probing questions, but I can't become an interrogator. I need to cool it and not try and turn into some sort of Hollywood coach with a towel around your shoulders saying, this is what you got to do, kid. Instead, you have to kind of pull back and listen and realize this is a massive deal for this kid. They've, they've announced it maybe in a very, very big way. It might be, and it often is, the first big no from this meek kid. Not always, but it's quite noticeably, it's their first rejection of you and the and yourself. And so as a parent who has been disempowered by society and by schools, and you're right about schools, you, you have to think, I need to regain authority in my family because parents are the, we are the project managers of the home. We create the tone, we create the vibe, if you follow me, parents do. And if you are thinking 
somebody else is creating it. You've given your power away. You had kids for a reason. You had kids because you wanted to create presumably a lovely thing in the household. And in a way, gender is incredibly stressful, but it will challenge you to think about where am I in my child's life? What is my position in my child's life? And that's when you're going quiet. You're thinking, what is my position? Because there's a kind of a, there's a, almost a Venn diagram. There's the state have certain authority over your child to make sure that you are feeding them and keeping them warm or whatever. You have certain authority to keep them safe and to give you maybe give them your values. And the child has input. And so it's it's kind of a Venn diagram of of who has authority over this position. And I would argue that parents should make sure that I, I'm not afraid of the word authority. I'm not authoritarian, but I'm very into being authoritative, if you follow me, as I stumble over the word without authority. <laughs> but like, I think it's very important that parents start figuring out what is wrong with my kid and how can I help them? And how much is the online influences um, difficult and destructive for my kid? And do I need to bring in boundaries about the online influences? Do I need to bring in some tech controls? Often that's a good place to start. Start with, you know, some boundaries around tech, some boundaries around the content. Very often expansive conversations about who they are, what they want to be, what it is to be a person, what it is to be a boy, what it is to be a girl, the impact of society, the impact of social contagion, talking about different social contagions that have passed, if you follow me, just different ones, kind of talking about the impact of social um, media, talking about um, the impact of different traumas they might have had in their life talking about how their autistic diagnosis, for example, might lead them to a very literal understanding where if somebody says the word he, that means they believe that they really are a boy because somebody has said it. Talking about the impact of being um, maybe naive and falling for fabulous thoughts. Talking about lots of different concepts that have beguiled young people before, like communism or, um, let me think, the rainforests and stuff like that. And let's say the, the 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 sexual revolution in the 1960s. There's been so many punk revolution in the 70s. There's been so many kind of um, fuck the establishment kind of movements, and they're very attractive to young people. Talking about those movements, not saying you're not the first with a with a pull down authority, more making sure that they're educated about other things that have gone on. So you're expanding their mind. And more than anything, you know, as my colleague Sasha Ayad, we have a podcast together, me and Sasha, um, you know, um, gender a wider lens. And um, what we try to talk about is bringing in love and structure, bringing in love and boundaries, bringing in some boundaries and not being afraid to bring in boundaries and being incredibly tender as well, because this kid is probably in deep distress and needs a lot of love. Um, Okay. Right, let's switch from love to hate. I want to bring in um, a little bit of the broader political framework around this and the way in which women in particular are treated if they talk about this issue and raise the kinds of questions, even if they do it in a very clear-eyed, honest way that, that as you guys do in your in your book. Um, you mentioned that you made trans kids, it's time to talk uh, for Channel 4, yeah. I think, uh, f- uh, f- five years ago. Um caused a storm um you know there's a woman on tv talking about trans issues in a critical way let's shut her down she's a transphobe she's a bigot the typical response 
things have actually got worse since then. I think you were one of the early cases of of someone being uh, demonized for raising perfectly legitimate, important questions. Uh, you know, the most recent example is Roisin Murphy, for, uh, which seems to have been the straw that broke the camel's back for some people. I think there's a recognition that Roisin Murphy is an important cultural figure and also someone who obviously doesn't hate people or have any element of bigotry. And yet she's been hounded for making a very clear point about the dangers of puberty blockers. Do you think there's, is this misogyny? Is that this cancel culture that swirls around the trans question, which I've felt elements of it, you know, I've had protests at Oxford University, for example, gender critical women seem to bear the brunt of it more than gender critical men. Um, And they have been cancelled. They have been blacklisted. I'm sure there are lots of women out there who follow your work, but probably don't express similar ideas because they might lose their jobs or they might be lose their friends or or whatever. What do you think about that culture and how dangerous is it to the kind of questions you want to raise in the public sphere? You know, from my own life, I had never really bought into misogyny. I was like, ah, yeah, women's rights and all that. And I, I was very unbothered by it. Do you know what I mean? And I, I, I wasn't somebody who was really um, interested in feminist theory. Obviously, I'd, I'd evidently had enough privilege to not feel that it had bothered me. And so when people first started talking about the misogyny online, I didn't buy it. I, I didn't buy that it was happening. I was very resistant to it. And by the way, I remember you gave a, a lovely review of, of your a flower in the midst of the demonization in 2018 of the of the film Trans Kids. So thank you very much. I've never spoken to you since. And it, it was it really meant an awful lot. And I didn't know anybody. I wasn't on Twitter. I just joined. And I, I, I was like, who's this? What's this? Ah! I'm so out of my depth. It was a, it was a frightening time, and uh, sure I know everyone now. And so um, I I I really was stupefied to see there is misogyny. That there's an extraordinary deep vitriolic hatred of women from a, a, an awful lot of very educated men. And I remember when Graham Linehan called them Jenny's boyfriends and he was talking about Jenny in Forrest Gump and she had these horrible boyfriends that kept on knocking her around. And I was like, he nailed it. Jenny's boyfriends, these kind of white-faced, intellectual, cerebral misogynists. Do you know what I mean? So I have been proved utterly wrong. And um, my, my, my caution and reservation around that was, I was just so wrong that the, the misogyny is... It's so obvious. If you and I tweet something today as a test, I just watch, you know what I mean? Well, how it would respond, how I would get it and how you would get it. You'd, you'd get a few flicks. I saw a few Irish politicians throughout men and uh, put it through. Ah, they got a bit of jip. Nothing, nothing really. While the, um, the women get absolutely, it's just hard to describe until you watch it. And so... I, I, yeah, I, I had underestimated and completely dismissed, stupidly, uh, the misogyny. What, what impact do you think that has on curtailing this discussion? Do, or, or do you think there's now such a pushback against it from women like you? There are many others as well that actually the, the, the side of reason and, well, open debate is having its comeback. How bad do you think cancel culture is for this question? Well, yeah, um, I think 
I think cancel culture is losing its power. Thankfully, I think so many people are 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 the the undead are you know we're walking around, we've been cancelled and we're continuing to speak, and there is so many of us that we've gained an awful lot of power because um, people are just pushing back. They're pu- everybody is sick of these puritanical, self righteous, very very aggressive people who want to ruin other people's lives rather than have some sort of a concept of you have your views, I have mine. These are really basic, you know, tenets of a, of a civilized society is we, the freedom to disagree and they have no room for it. It's incredibly, you know, we've had it so many times. We've had McCarthyism, we've had the Stasi, we've had it so many times where the collective wanting to shut down individual voices. So we it turns out we hadn't learned from history at all. But I do think and I'm delighted that like you know there's there's three Irish women like myself and Helen Joyce obviously and and Roisin Murphy are proving that um actually cancel culture has become a little bit embarrassing for everybody. And I've no doubt I'll be canceled many times again. I I, I get canceled regularly. But I I I wear it much lighter now. And I think a lot of people now I do know there was a there was a sad little kind of event a few weeks ago on Twitter on some woman. I won't mention her, but I saw her getting absolutely walloped. And I did speak to her and she was very, very upset. She was in tears. She felt her life was over. So I'm not saying it doesn't happen. This is in real life just a few weeks ago. It is happening. It's the smaller, quieter people who don't um don't know how to handle being being hated that they they just they just kind of quietly go away. I get so many private messages, private emails. I support your stuff. I've never tweeted any of it, all this sort of stuff. So um, that is a little bit tragic. But I do think, you know, without a doubt, there's a sea change. Yeah. And I, th- I think you're right on the misogynistic component to this. And it's interesting that you had that kind of awakening when you went online and saw the response to some of these women. I mean, and then it get it takes the extreme form of the things that are said to J.K. Rowling, for example, you know, death threats, rape threats, um, and explicitly misogynistic abuse, you know, suck my girl dick. I mean, just menacing misogynistic commentary that is aimed at women who hold perfectly reasonable views that would be shared by most people. And then, of course, Kelly J. Keane get us surrounded by a kind of feral mob in, in New Zealand. I mean, really shocking stuff. So it does sometimes feel almost like the successful pushback that is being launched by women is, I think, antagonizing some of these men so much that they are becoming slightly more rash. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I, I want to ask you, um, just to, as we wrap up, I want to ask you about Genspect. You've mentioned Genspect already, and, and you've mentioned already what Genspect is designed to do. So Gen, Genspect is your an international group that you founded, made up of professionals, um, detransitioners, parents, group, trans people. Um, and it basically argues for a non-medical approach to the issues of gender diversity. So, you know, the, the, the revolutionary idea that instead of mutilating a 16-year-old girl who feels a bit boyish, you might just let her express herself in various different ways. You know, who would have thought that would be such a radical proposition to put forward? Of course, Genspect is referred to as transphobic and you know over the past few days as I was reading your book and reading some of the old stuff you wrote as well 
um, in preparation for this podcast, I also looked at the Wikipedia page for Genspect. It's always a bit of a mistake to look at Wikipedia, I find. Um, but it does basically say they're all a bunch of bigots and transphobes in, in not in so many words, but it is a very biased presentation. Um, so here you go. You tell us the truth about Genspect and, and what you guys aim to do with the, with the kind of outreach work and the discussions and the conferences that you've been holding. Yeah, our, our, our mission is to promote a healthy approach to sex and gender. And um, we do seek to see how gender diversity could be celebrated and accepted in society, but a non-medicalized approach. And I'm a psychotherapist. It's like, you know, there's a, if there's a, a conference for psychiatrists up the road and they're talking about antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication, and I'm like, yeah, that's bully for you. I'm not interested in that. I'm a psychotherapist. I want to talk about how we with our mind can improve our lives without medicalization. That's the emphasis of a psychotherapist. We're not interested in the medicalized approach. That's for the psychiatrists and others, doctors. And um, equally, Genspect is about the non-medicalized approach. And let other people, let WPAT do the medicalized approach. Off they go. We're not interested in that. We're interested in a non-medicalized approach. And so WPAT are holding a series of uh, conferences. They, They always do every year. And um, we've decided because they were so strident on the hashtag no debate, because they have, you know, silenced so many voices and their supporters more than than anything have silenced so many people who just wanted to debate the issues now that it's become so mainstream. Um, We've chosen to um, confront that by going head to head and having a conference where WPATH have conference. So it's like a counter conference, like a fringe conference. And so WPATH were in Killarney in um in april and so we were in killarney in april and we had our first inaugural counter conference and it was a great success it was just really really heartening to have so many i mean extraordinary minds who were like helen joyce was the the keynote speaker but those lisa Littman spoke and ken zucker spoke and you know malcolm clark and so, so many people gave phenomenal phenomenal kind of um presentations about gender Michael Biggs was amazing. And we had a panel, we had 15 detransitioners who all spoke about what their their kind of experiences. And we're having another conference in Denver in on the 4th and 5th because WPATH, of course, will be in Denver in early November. So we're going to be in Denver in early November and we're going to have our conference. Again, just saying, ye, ye do you, we're doing us. And if you want to come over, you're very welcome to listen to a non-medicalized approach. Why can't a boy wear a dress without being medicalized? Why can't a girl walk around with a hoodie and cut her hair short and present in a boyish way? Why does she have to medicalize that? Why does she have to have a, a heavy invasive medical intervention such as a mastectomy? So that, that the kind of paints her into a corner that she'll never be able to get out of. So that's the concept. You know, the book, When Kids Say They're Trans, is very much in tandem with that, because it's basically saying, how about helping your kid in a non-medicalized way? You know, if you want to medicalize your kid, honestly, there's loads of books out there. There's loads of books out there. There's loads of support out there. This book is very pro-parent and it's very explicitly about, you know, um, how about if you don't want to medicalize them, if you don't want to socially transition them, how could you do it? Well, here's a few ways. So Jen Spectrum and When Kids Say They're Trans is not a huge, massive difference between, well, is there any ethos of either? Stella, thank you very much. Thank you.
thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.